I tell you what, one of the things we're going to learn this morning and one of the things that uh, we'll kind of talk about more and more in the next six weeks of this campaign study is theology and understanding who we are and what we believe and why we believe it. That is a communal activity. That's a corporate activity. That's something we need to be doing together. And uh, it's not meant for us to just sit in isolation and kind of do all that. So I'm super excited about this. Um, I know at times... Uh, when you hear things like theology and doctrine, uh, sometimes that can scare you and you're just thinking this is going to be ridiculous. This is going to be overly intellectual. I'm not going to get anything out of it. Let me just tell you, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And the reason why I say it's going to be okay is the whole point of what we're, we're doing here is we are actually trying to help us as a church understand what it means for us to be Protestant. And we're celebrating the 500th anniversary uh, of the Protestant Reformation. And, and, and we want to know our history. We want to know why we believe what we believe and what we believe because it's an identity marker. But it's also something that helps us understand how to live faithfully with God. And it's such an important thing. And um, I love these topics and uh, one of the reasons why I love preaching these topics is it reminds me of, the, of just how beautiful Scripture is. Because here's the thing is in, in Christianity we uh, have two metaphors that we use a lot um, to kind of describe the, the mind and also the heart. And, and it goes like this. Um, we often talk about how theology is illuminating and how uh, it's, it's a part of the mind and it brings clarity and stuff. And in our culture, we actually have, we use that metaphor a lot. When you teach somebody something and they understand it, what happens? A light bulb goes on. Does that make sense? And so what we would say is theology is illuminating. It's light. And so Christianity has a lot of light involved in it. But then there's also the other side of it, which is the emotional side of it. And we often attribute passion with the idea or the metaphor of fire. And you understand fire is heat. And so in Christianity, you have, you have light and heat. And what you have is the intellect, the mind, and also the heart and the emotions. And part of what we're going to be doing in the study of the Reformation is making sure that we understand that Christianity is never asking us to choose one or the other, light or heat. You're never put in a situation where you have to choose whether I will be intellectual or whether I will be emotional and passionate. Instead, Christianity is about fusing both together in a cohesive wholeness. And I love doing this. You know, um, one of the things about preaching is oftentimes uh, people give feedback, uh, for better or worse. Um, some, most of the time feedback is helpful, sometimes it's not. But somebody gave me feedback one time and they said, hey, I just want to let you know uh, I probably won't be coming back to church anymore once you start preaching more because I just, I can't stand listening to you. <laughs> and I thought, awesome, nice to meet you. I mean, like what do you say to that? And so I asked, what is it about me? And they said, you know what it is? I can't stand how emotional you are. Like you're moving your hands and you're walking around and it's just, it's too much. I don't want to deal with it. And I'm thinking, whoa. And I have to tell you, in the very same Sunday, the very same Sunday, after the same exact uh, service, somebody else came up to me at the end of the line and they go, I just want to tell you, uh, you know, I don't mean this to be offensive, but I really don't think that my family and I are going to be able to continue coming here. We just can't stand your preaching. And I'm thinking, oh, it's the emotions again. And I said, well, what is it? And it's like, you're too intellectual. It's just too hard. And I sat there and I thought to myself, well, which is it? Am I too emotional or too intellectual? And I realized, really, I don't need to like be worried about it. I just need to simply say, thank you, God, because I'm offending everybody. <laughs> but, 
but, but I realize this is, is for me, and, and, and I hope this will become true of you. For me, I tell you what, one of the most emotional things that I do is when I perceive something to be beautiful and, and, and I cherish it emotionally and I'm thinking about it intellectually, I realize that they complement each other. In every relationship that you, un, you have experienced as a human being, just think about that. When you are introduced to somebody for the first time, what ends up happening, you, you like them or dislike them. And depending on whether you like them or dislike them, which is an emotion, you want to continue to be in their presence to what? Get to know them. And the more you know them, the more you feel your affections growing for them. And the more your affections are growing for them, the more you want to spend time with them to get to know them a little bit better. And the more deeper you get to know them, the more affections you have for them. And on and on it goes. And if that works with other people, doesn't it work also with the person of God? And so the, the, the Reformation study that we're doing is going to be us talking with clarity and precision about theology in order that our affections will be kindled and we will respond adequately. And that is with white, hot, emotional worship. So that's what we're going to do. And I realize, uh, I realize some of you may not want to do the theology thing. Some of you may not want to do the emotional thing. And I'm telling you, you don't have to choose. But I'm telling you, the most Christ-like formation of your own soul will be when you embrace both. We want clear theology. And I want God to stir in me affections that are appropriate to what I know of him to be true. That's what I want. So I'm preaching today topically. It's not what I typically like to do. It's not what I'm comfortable doing. I feel very odd and I'm very aware of myself right now. Because I like taking a Bible verse and I like just reading it, praying over it, and then telling you all, explaining what I see here. I don't get to do that today. Um, there's going to be a lot of content in the book. I encourage you to buy the book. There's an e-book. Books are for sale out there. But there's going to be new stuff in the sermon. And I'm just, I'm a nervous wreck. So, um, this is not my wheelhouse. This is not what I'm comfortable doing. So let's pray for me, <laughs> for us. God, you see how I'm feeling. God, you see how uh, much discomfort there is for me to have to, to talk in this way. And so I pray, God, that you would grant me grace and uh, that you would be merciful to your people. If I don't explain things the way that I know you would want me to explain them, I pray, God, that you mercifully would grant them clarity. And, God, I would pray that you would, because we're told very clearly in Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is how you teach us the deep things of who you are. 1 Corinthians 2 says we have the mind of Christ through the Spirit. So, God, would you pour out your Spirit upon us as a church? In such a way that we will have the mind of Christ. And having the mind of Christ, we would behold and treasure the deep and beautiful things of who you are and what you've done. But God, we're also very mindful that the Spirit is the means through which we have hope and joy. That you pour out the Spirit into our hearts that we may abound with joy and hope. And so I pray, God, that you would also grant us the Spirit so that our affections would be appropriately experienced and expressed due to what we've read and thought about. So God, we need the spirit to do both, to give us the mind and give us the heart. And so I pray you do that.
God, whatever you teach us, I pray that it is for our growth and edification. And I pray that whatever it is you show us, we would respond with gratitude. So God, teach us now. We're begging you. Let us have your presence today, tangibly. Let us feel that you are here. So we pray for the Spirit to come and teach your people for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Thank you. The Protestant Reformation. Here's what I want you guys to take away today. The Protestant Reformation was primarily a rediscovery of the biblical gospel that transformed the world through both its light and its heat. What I want us to understand is as we read through the five solas workbook all six weeks, the aim of all of this is for us to understand that the Reformation was a movement in the 16th, 17th century which involved men and women who were rediscovering the biblical gospel. And as they were discovering the biblical gospel, their own hearts were set ablaze and they began to live differently. And through their transformed lives, the world itself began to be transformed. And we'll have an opportunity to talk more about that. But it came through the effects of the gospel in both light and heat. That there was illumination and there was mindfulness and there was uh, in, in, intelligence and there was thinking but there was also passion and there was joy and there was emotions and it's both it's not one or the other and when we talk about doctrine I've got a couple emails and stuff from people saying what in the world is doctrine I have no idea what that word means I have no idea how to uh, conceive of the idea of theology so what is that so this is how the sermon is going to break down we're going to start with what is doctrine what are its dangers and what are its delights how does it actually encourage us and how should we be warned about it? And then we're going to move into understanding a little bit about who Martin Luther was and asking ourselves the question, because he's pretty much the most famous person associated with the Protestant Reformation. Who, what did he experience and what was going through his mind during that time? And then lastly, there was a particular verse, Romans 1, 16 and 17, that captured the imagination of Martin Luther and set his heart ablaze for the gospel. And so what we're going to do thirdly is go look at that verse and see what it is he saw there that caused so much transformation in his own heart. So we'll look at some definitions and some terms. We're going to jump into who Martin Luther was, a, a little quick sample, and then we'll jump into Romans chapter 1. So that's where we're headed. So let's start with what is a doctrine. That sounds big and scary. A doctrine is a theological, a body of theological content that is to be believed. It's a, it's a body of theological content that we must believe. And so whenever we see the word doctrine, especially in First and Second Timothy and Titus, that's where Paul uses it most frequently. What he's referring to is the body of theological content that Christians must believe. And another synonym for that is what we find in Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And it's the apostles' teaching. It's the idea that, remember when the disciples were gathered and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit and they were devoted, they had devoted themselves to uh, prayer and to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread. That's what that's meant is they were devoting themselves to doctrine. And so we have lots of different doctrines. We have a body of theological understanding about certain things. We have like the doctrine of the Trinity. We have the doctrine of the atonement. We have the doctrine of Christ. These are the theological understandings that are to be believed. And so that's what doctrine is. It also is a marker. It's something that identifies somebody and enables them to be recognized. 
And it's intended to be something that is passed down. So not only is it a theological body of content that is to be believed, but it's something that identifies someone and a group of people. And its intention is to be passed down from one generation to the next. We pick this up in the small epistle called Jude in verse 3. Here's what he writes. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about, and, and look at this phrase, our common salvation. Because theology is not meant to be done in isolation in a vacuum on an individual level. It's supposed to be communal. It's supposed to be corporate. It's supposed to be something we do in common. So he says, I'm very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for, and then look at this, the faith. Now notice he doesn't say a faith or particular expressions of faith. What he says is, I'm eager to write to you about our common salvation and to also contend for definite article, the faith. Which tells us there isn't a multiplicity. There's not a bunch of different faiths out there competing for one another. It is the faith and everything else is wrong. Does that make sense? So he's not mixing words and he says, and this faith, this definite article faith was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, so there's not a, an improvement to it in the sense that you're creating new stuff. It wasn't as if God had wrath and now he doesn't anymore because we become enlightened. It's not like that. It was once and for all handed down or delivered to the saints. Once and for all. So the faith, it's objective. It's just there. And that faith is common to us all. And that common faith we share is intended to be delivered from generation to generation. This is how Paul put it in 2 Timothy 3, uh, chapter 2. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see what he does there? He says, I, Paul, have been given it and I have been entrusted with the gospel, this apostle's teaching, this doctrine, and I'm now Handing it to you, Timothy. And Timothy, your charge is then, you're supposed to take that doctrine and teach it to reliable men. And those reliable men are supposed to take that doctrine and teach it to others also. So that way you have generational progression of doctrinal teaching. And that is discipleship. That's what it means to make disciples is not just, hey kid, get your act together. But instead it's, hey, this is our common faith. Let me hand it to you. It's entrusted to you. As 2 Timothy talks about everywhere. You've been entrusted with the gospel. Now being entrusted with the gospel, entrusted to somebody else. And then entrusted to them. And the whole intention is, if you truly understand the gospel, you will not keep it to yourself. It will be passed along. And so that's the concept of doctrine. It's a body of theological content that is to be believed. It marks and identifies a people set apart from other people and its intention is to be handed down to the next generation. But it can be a dangerous thing. When I say the word doctrine or theology, most of the time what comes to people's minds is cold intellectualism. And what I mean is people imagine that it's when you study theology or doctrine, you're sitting around a table and it's you and your friends and you're arguing about things and whether or not, um, you know, it means this or that or who knows. And let's, let's pretend like we know what we're talking about. We don't know what we're talking about. Let's forget all our neighbors. Let's not serve them. Who cares? Let's just read our books. 
and, and you're just heartless and you're cold and you really don't have any faith. You're just all about your head and intelligence and knowing stuff. For some of you, that's what you think about when, when you think about doctrine. That's what you think about when you think about theology. Because theology and doctrine is dangerous if it's pursued for its own sake. Here's what I mean. Uh, when I was younger um, in, in the faith, I became a Christian at 18. It was January of 1999. And then I was invited to a house to play Bible trivia, which is like a trivial pursuit but for Bible people. And so I was invited to play. I win. I was sitting there. And, and they're like, let's pick teams. I was the last guy chosen because I had never read the Bible before. And they knew, like, whoever's got him is going to lose. And guess what? We lost. And it was embarrassing because I'm a competitive person. I love sports. And so when somebody says, do you want to play a game, I'm in it to win it. Not to have an experience. I don't care about it. I'm trying to win. <laughs> so there I was at Bible trivia getting destroyed. And people are like, uh, who was the king who came after Saul? And it was our turn. And I'm like, oh, I have no idea. I've never read the Bible. And they're like. <laughs> and so I felt so humiliated. So what I did is I decided, you know what, for the rest of the year, 1999, I'm about to read the Bible and I'm going to destroy everybody at Bible trivia. And that's exactly what I did. So I read the Bible from cover to cover. So then all of a sudden I'm like, hey, anybody want to play a game of Bible trivia? And they're like, sure. We started playing Bible trivia and you probably don't know this about me, but I have a semi-photographic memory. So when I close my eyes, I can actually read everything that um, I've seen in my head so I can recall paragraphs and pages of books and stuff like that. And so they're asking questions and I'm like, I know that one. Here's the answer. And, and you know, like Trivial Pursuit, you have little pieces that you put in the little thing, the wedges. My wedges, full. Everyone else, zero or one. And I remember just thinking to myself, I've, I'm accomplished. I dominate everybody in Bible trivia. And then the youth pastor who led me to Christ, he goes, yeah, you won. Well, how's your pride feel right now? It was like, oh. And he read for me 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. He said, Phil, sound doctrine must accord with godliness. And I didn't know what that meant exactly, but he says, whatever theology you boast to know, it better be in accordance with and it better be complemented by your godliness. And the fact that you are boasting about what you know is out of step with sound doctrine. You are wrong, dead wrong. Even though you won, you lost. I'm going, oh. So when I speak to you guys as somebody, and telling you that, you know, it's dangerous, intellectualism and theology can be dangerous. I'm also telling you that it's something we need to pursue. I'm not telling you as a spectator. I'm telling you as somebody who's been there, somebody who is a rotten, sinful, prideful man who boasted about knowledge. And in that was exposed to be a selfish, sinning jerk. I'm speaking from experience. And when Paul uh, talks about this danger of intellectualism, he actually writes in his 2 Timothy chapter 3 where he's talking about the godlessness in the last days. He said people are going to be mockers and scoffers and they're going to do all this horrible thing. And then he says in verse 5, these same people, these godless people in the last days, they're going to be the kind of people that they have the form of godliness, but they deny its power or they are powerless. So on the outside, it looks like they got everything under control. They got good families. They look like they're, you know, well-to-do people. They're moral. But on the inside, they are powerless. And I'm thinking, well, what kind of people are these? And he says in verse 7, as a conclusion, these kinds of people are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
It's the kind of approach where you're reading books and you're reading blogs and you're listening to podcasts and you're accumulating learning, 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 but you're never at a point in which you arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Let me explain. In January 2018, many of you have decided to get healthy. And what that means for you is you're going to start exercising and eating right. So what you've done is you've researched exercise equipment, you've researched exercise clothing that will, you know, like get the sweat away. So you're working out hard, but it doesn't look like it. And then you're also researching what kind of foods you should be eating. You're, you're learning about ancient grains and quinoa. That's interesting. And, and pretty soon you're going to make kale smoothies. Here you are. So... Your refrigerator is full of like stalks of kale and you got all kinds of green stuff that you can't even imagine that you would ever put in your mouth. But there it is. Your cupboards are full of ancient grains and all this kind of stuff. And then you have the workout equipment. You got the workout clothing and you're set. You've been doing research. You've been listening to exercise uh, podcasts and you've been researching blogs. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to get healthy. The question is with all those clothes, all that gear, all that, that food and stuff, are you actually healthy? And the answer is no. Until you eat the food. And until you start exercising, you're just accumulating learning. And just because you learn about being healthy, that doesn't make you healthy. And just because we accumulate theology and just because we accumulate doctrine, it does not make us godly. That's the danger. Not only that, but we have to be very careful One of the other dangers is to pit emotion against doctrine. In Christianity, we hear this all the time that, you know what, I'm not an intelligent, I'm more emotional. I connect with God emotional. Cool, that's a good disposition. But it's not an excuse not to know things. And so the dangerous thing is when we say, actually, you know, we, we have intelligence and theology here and we have emotion here, passion, and we have to choose. And we actually have this in our Christian subculture. And maybe, I don't know if you've heard this before, but there's phrases to uh, describe these kinds of, you know, like, I guess, parties. One of them is the frozen chosen. That's the people who are Calvinists and who are predominantly Presbyterian. And they go to church and they sit and they're there. And, yes, I agree with that. Okay, great. And it's just, yeah, we're going to sing some hymns. Okay, well, let's go. And then on the other side, we have this phrase called the holy rollers. And that's the, the, you go to the church, like people rolling down the aisle and ripping their shirt and people are barking and things like that. And you're like, what? And so they're full of emotion. They're full of entertainment and they're full. And so you have to make the decision, what church am I going to go to? The one over here, the frozen chosen or the holy rollers? Am I going to do the mind or I'm going to do the heart thing? What is my choice? And I'm telling you right from the beginning, that is not biblical. You do not choose between one or the other. And in fact, to choose one or the other is actually to go against what God has explained and expressed in the scriptures. Let me show you. I love this in uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, where Paul talks about how we can, by persevering in the faith and actually reading this book, this beautiful, true, inspired by God book without error. This book, if we read this, we can accumulate great encouragement. That encouragement from this book and that perseverance of the faith will produce in us a hope. Now what he concludes is Romans 15 verse 13. And he talks about this great hope that we have as Christians. And he prays. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
Now, let me read that, that, that sentence again because he's praying for emotion. Do you guys get that? I'm praying that God would fill you with joy, fill you with peace. But then if you notice the whole prayer for more emotion is in the context of theology. So I'm going to stop reading at the point at which a theological, um, a, a theological point is, is mentioned. Here we go. You guys ready for that? I'll stop whenever there's theology. All right. May the God. Stop. Who is this God? What is he like? What does he do? What, what does he enjoy? How is he pleased? Okay. Well, he's the God of hope. Stop. Okay. What in the world are you talking about? What is hope? And may he fill you. Oh, stop, 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 stop. Who is you? What does it mean to be a you? Not only that, but what does it mean for a God to, to fill a you? Does God, do, do, does God still actively do stuff? Oh, let's keep going. With all joy and peace, all we get that in believing. Believing what? Do you, do you notice you can't get very far? Even praying about being emotional, you can't get very far um, in, in that kind of prayer without using some sort of theological language. So that's why it's so actually just... It, it, it doesn't make sense to pit these two things together as if you must choose whether or not you're going to be intellectual or whether you're going to be emotional. The, the story of Christianity is more beautiful than that. You don't have to be either one. You get both. And that's why I'm so happy that I offend people because I'm overly emotional and overly intellectual. That's awesome. That means I'm doing both. So Christian hope is profoundly emotional. That's one reason why, brothers and sisters, I want our worship services to be filled with emotion. But I don't want them to be merely emotional. I want them to be rich in their theological content. Because as we behold the majesty and the mystery of God and all that he is for us in Christ and we sing about it and we hear it and we think about it and we treasure it, the most expressive thing that we could do and the most God-honoring thing to do is be emotional about that. That's why you're singing and you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. If you want to like bow down and get on your knees, I know there's not a lot of room between the pews, but just do it. And if you want to clap, clap. And even if you're offbeat, that's okay. But my thought is, man, why aren't we expressing the emotion? And the only answer is, one, we're embarrassed of other people, which means we're, we're, we're focused on self. Or there's no emotion to express. And my thought is, man, what if a church was so rich in its theology that when people began to sing about the resurrected Jesus, the only thing they could do is just start clapping because they're like, that's amazing. That's the kind of thing that Paul's envisioning here. Christian hope filled with joy, emotion, but deeply connected to clear teaching and theology. Now, maybe you don't. Agree with that. And that's fine to be wrong. Okay, Deuteronomy 28. <laughs> I read these verses and I have to tell you, when I read these verses, it freaked me out. I read this. This is God speaking to his people, the nation of Israel. He says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Just think about that. I, I want you to serve me with joy and with gladness of heart. That's what I want. But because you have not done this, even though you have the abundance of all things, I've given you so much to be joyful about. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. I hope you notice that. I'm looking at that emotion. Yay! <gasps> That's why we can't be frivolous about our emotions. 
When I say emotion, I don't mean entertainment. What I mean is actual emotion that is a direct response from a beautiful truth. And if we won't serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart, God threatens us. Because he's deadly serious about the emotional life. But it's not just emotions. Because I know some emotional people are like, yeah, see, and you're elbowing whoever. And you're like, I told you. Got to be more emotional. Hosea 4.6. This is a warning for those who are overly emotional. Talking about why he's sending his people into exile. God says this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Uh Uh-oh. Because you forgot my word. I'm done with you. I don't know about you, but that sounds like God means business. And when I read that, I go, okay, Lord. What you're saying to me is I need to be intellectual. I need to know things. But I also need to be very emotional. To which God would reply, yes, but my disposition leans towards one and not the other. Yes. So I can't do this in my own power. Yes. So I kind of need your help with this. Yes. And in fact, as I prayed earlier, the Holy Spirit, one of the expressed jobs that the Holy Spirit says he does is to help us think well. Not only that, but then we're told in Romans 5 that God pours out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. That we may have joy of hope. So the Holy Spirit actually produces emotions. So now I take a step back and I'm like, you want me to be highly intellectual and highly emotional. I can't do that in and of myself. How can I do it? You provided for me the Holy Spirit to plunge the depths of who God is and to also be emotional about all that I see there. I must have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not so I can roll on the ground or because I can do theology, but because of both. It's not entertainment. What it is is knowing God and seeing his value and beauty and treasuring him and realizing the only appropriate thing I can do right now is worship him joyfully. So that's how doctrine can be delightful. I love my wife in part because I know her. There would be no sense in me saying, I love my wife. I love that she's six foot two and she has red hair. If anyone knows my wife, she's not six two, she's five six. She doesn't have red hair, she's brown hair. And so if, you, if I told you I love my wife, man, so much, I love her height and her red hair, you, you would start to go, oh, I wonder if he has two wives. Uh, <laughs> and would that not question my love for her if I don't even know what her hair color is? So how is it that we're talking about we love God, love God, and I'm just emotional. <laughs> and then I ask the simple question, is God three in one? I don't know. Who cares about that? Whoa. I have to question your love for him. I have to. Because I question whether or not you even know him. So do you actually love the God who has revealed himself through this word? Or do you love the God that you have created in your own imagination? Because one's called idolatry and the other one is called worship. So these things matter. They matter. And another thing is right living leads to, uh, right thinking leads to right living. And we, this is in our culture. It's pretty prevalent. If you just think appropriately, then your life will follow suit. 
In part, that's true. But it's only true so far as it is theological. If you begin to think accurately and precisely and truthfully about who God is, it will transform the way you live. And, it, and I know people, like, they scoff at that and they're like, oh, I don't know if that's true. That's, again, it's okay to be wrong. But let me help you with that. When you ever read Paul's letters, when he writes to churches that are having conflict and issues, like the church in Corinth. Remember they had divisions? There was sexual immorality running rampant through the church. Do you remember what he prescribed for that church? He said, you guys are causing division. You choose this pastor over this pastor. You think that pastor is better than that pastor. And there's all kinds of division. So he, he asked the question, is Christ divided? Or in other words, let me ask you a theological question. And so Paul's prescription for the divisions in the church in Corinth was more theology. Not only that, but sexual immorality. A guy was boasting about having uh, sexual intercourse with his stepmom. And the church was boasting about it like, yeah. And Paul asked the question, do you not know that your body is a temple of the spirit? Or in other words, why is your theology wrong? You see, the root cause of this sexual immorality is because you don't understand properly the theology of God's indwelling spirit and his redemption of you and what it means to be the body of Christ. Theology leads to right living. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. He didn't just say, hey, you got to make sure that your character is good. Make sure you have integrity. You'll be a great pastor. Nor did he say, hey, you just got to make sure you're teaching accurate biblical truth. You got to have both, Timothy. You got to walk in purity and integrity and character and you better be teaching the right things. Because one complements and describes and explains the other. Your sound doctrine must be in accord with godliness. We're not playing games here. So right living is a result of right thinking. And the more accurate our theology is, the more likely that our actions will follow suit. And another delightful thing is this. Joy and gladness fuels greater hunger for God. Joy, emotion. It fuels a hunger to know more of God. And when you have the hunger to know more of God, it fuels even more emotion. I love what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 28. He says, therefore, let us be grateful. Keep that in mind, grateful, emotion. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, and that English word means and in this way. And in this way, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So what the author is saying is, look, acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe is the kind of worship that is filled with gratitude, emotion for you're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken because of the gospel. So acceptable worship must have emotion in it. It has to. At least at base level, gratitude. And I love Psalm 100 because it puts it together probably most clearly for me anyways. And every time I go to a worship service, I was in Minneapolis uh, this last week and Heather and I went to a church that was 165 years old. And it was awesome. Organs, stained glass, loved it. And when we walked in there, I just kept thinking of Psalm 100. It, it goes like this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. 
Do you guys see it? Emotion, emotion, emotion. Verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Did you see the theology there? God is good. He's our shepherd. God, everlasting love. So packed in there and one informs the other. And so one of the beautiful things about doctrine and theology is it helps inform us and it gives us the necessary fuel we need to have an emotional, passionate response to all that God is and all that God has done for us in the person of Christ. We have to have both. That's one of the best delightful things about this. And I find for me, I don't know this to be true for anyone else, but I know this is for me. I find that my passion is most explosive after I've had my mind engaged. Not only that, but I also find that my mind is most active about those very things that I cherish most deeply. Let me say it differently. If I love something a lot, I'm going to think about it often. And the more I think about it often, the more I'm going to cherish it emotionally. Do you guys see how it's all connected? It's important. So remember, the Protestant Reformation was primarily a rediscovery of the biblical gospel that transformed the world through both its light and its heat. So now let's go to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, in 1505, he graduated from the University of Erfurt with a bachelor's and a master's degree in law. Smart dude. On July 2nd, he was walking home from the university to his parents' house when all of a sudden a huge thunderstorm broke out. And it was so loud, the lightning and thunder scared him so much that he hit the ground and he began to tremble. And he cried out in desperation, help me, help me, St. Anne, and I will be a monk. And so he eventually got off the ground and made his way back to his parents' house, realizing that he made a vow and commitment to God and he was going to fulfill it. So he told his parents, I'm going to become a monk. And he did. He entered a monastery of the Augustinian sect, which means the Augustinian monks were the most severe. They were the most strict. They had the most rules. And the reason why Luther chose that one is because in Christianity at that time, in medieval Catholicism, this is what the main teaching was. That God will not deny his grace to those who try their best. And so in Luther's mind, he goes, okay, wait a minute. So everyone's teaching that if I just try my best, that God will guarantee me his grace. So if I go to a monastery that has all of these rules and laws and I obey them perfectly, I am more guaranteed that I will get his grace. And that's kind of what we teach today. Not in our church, but just out there. People, God helps those who help themselves. False. We're not in the Bible. God will give grace to those who try their best. False. Not in the Bible. Sounds nice. Not true. But in Luther's mind, he's like, okay, if I just, okay, if I just excel at being a monk, then I will earn enough of God's grace to get saved. Luther, Luther would later write, if any monk ever got to heaven by his monkery, then I should have made it. Luther knew that the whole reason to go into a monastery is to make sure that you are away from the sin that's out there. The only problem is Luther became well acquainted of the sin that was in here. And no monastery 
can purge that. No monastery, no amount of acts can ever get rid of the sin that's in our hearts. So he became aware that he was sinful, boastful, that he was arrogant, that he was faithless. And he performed more and more good works to try to alleviate his pain and the affliction of his conscience. And none of it worked. One day he was there about a year after and he was going to perform mass at church. Now in Catholic teaching, when you perform a mass, the priest who performs it is earning merit while he does it. And if you earn enough merit through saying enough mass, then you're actually going to get enough grace to get you into heaven. So there is Luther doing his first mass, knowing that if he does this rightly and perfectly, he's going to get more grace and he's going to get more merit. And that will help him along the way until he started uttering in Latin this. He said, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. When drops of sweat began to fall from my head and I was terrified. He wrote later about this. At these words, I was utterly stupefied. I was terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such a majesty? seeing that all men ought to tremble at the presence of even an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes and raise my hands to the divine majesty? I am dust and ashes. I'm full of sin and I am speaking to the living, eternal and true God. He finished the mass, but he was just freaked out. How in the world, me a sinner, how can I speak to God who's holy? And the answer of the Catholic Church is do more stuff, perform more penance, go and see more relics, go and do this stuff and then you'll have confidence and then you'll have assurance and then you'll know that God is for you, not against you. And what Luther did was exactly that. He went to his mentor Stoppitz and he told him about all the anguish he has in his soul. And his mentor Stoppitz said, what you need to do is go on a spiritual retreat. You're going to Rome, the eternal city. So Luther went there. When he arrived, he saw all the rampant immorality and he could not believe what he was seeing. But he went to all the relics and, and holy sites anyways. He went and observed uh, a little piece of straw that was purported to be from the actual manger of Jesus. He went and saw a strand of Mary's hair. And he knew that when he went there that the Catholic teaching was the more that you go and see these things, the more merit you're going to gain and then you'll have more confidence that you're going to heaven. He actually went to this place called Pontius Pilate's Stairs. It was a series of stairs that went up that was purported to be the actual stairs that Pontius Pilate ascended when he gave judgment on Jesus. And if you were to get on your knees and say the Lord's Prayer, recite it on every step, by the time you got to the top and you said it perfectly, then God will grant that you have a loved one that will spring from purgatory and enter into the gates of paradise immediately. So Luther got on his knees and climbed up all the stairs saying the Lord's Prayer, got to the very top and this is what he asked himself, who even knows if this is true? How do I know this is working? Or in other words, how much is enough? And do you see the anguish of his soul, the anguish of his mind? And if we teach that kind of nonsense in our churches and in our families and in our community, that Christianity is fundamentally about you trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you have the inner fortitude and strength to do it, just do enough good works, raise a good family, make sure your kids don't swear and they get good grades, make sure they're a good athlete or musician, do things like this and then God will make sure that you get saved. How do you know it's enough? How do you know if your kids' grades are enough or if their accolades are enough? Or how do you know if you've raised them well enough? How do you know if you made enough money and you told enough truth? How do you know what enough is? Have you signed up for enough Bible studies? Have you served enough ministries in our church? 
Have you served needy people enough? Have you recognized your neighbors enough? Have you shared the gospel enough? You see, if we based our salvation upon our works and our performance, let's be honest for a moment, we're all toast. And I know that that's like, oh, that's not good preaching. You need to, I need to leave here feeling encouraged. I need to soar. My aim in preaching is not to make you soar with self-confidence, to make you soar in the confidence that Jesus is enough for you. So Luther's fundamental question is, how do I get right with God? And his second question was related to it. How do I know that that's true? That's what's called the material principle and the formal principle, which you'll read about in your book. Luther was mesmerized and intrigued by these questions. How do I get right with God? How do I know? And people told him, his, his mentor Stoppitz told him, Luther, you can know because you just have to trust the gospel. And for Luther, that was inconceivable because the teaching at this time was do your best and God will reward you. So for Luther, he said, how is it possible to do my best and know for certain that God will reward me when my best is futile at best? He writes, if it's just me and my sin that has to face God and his holiness and his majesty, how possibly can I stand before him? Or in other words, your teaching is wrong. I can't be certain because I don't know how much is enough. I need help. The Reformation's answer was you can be made right with God through the doctrine of justification by faith or by grace through faith. Solus fide, sola gratia, solus Christus. And you can know that to be true because scripture teaches us that. And it's inerrant and it's infallible. It does not make mistakes. The Holy Spirit wrote it. Sola scriptura. And all of this is for God's glory and our joy. Soli Deo Gloria. And that's the Reformation. It was primarily a rediscovery of the gospel. In fact, they had a Latin phrase that talked about this. It's called post tenebras lux. Post tenebras lux, which means after darkness, light. You see, it's often called the dark ages, the time in human history before the Renaissance. But they forget to tell you that it's also the dark ages before the time of the Reformation. They grew up together. And the light that transformed Europe and eventually the whole world, that light that came after darkness is none other than the gospel. The majesty, the mystery of all that God is for us in Jesus. So when Luther was told, you need to just believe the gospel, he asked himself, or he said, how can I believe the gospel? It is not good news to me. How is it good news to know that God has wrath towards me, a sinner. He would later write, if I know that God is for me and not against me, if I can know that God is not angry with me, I would stand on my head with joy. And so he eventually was kicked out of the monastery because his mentor didn't want to deal with him anymore. He was sent to the University of Wittenberg in Germany where he was to be a teacher teaching theology. And they said, basically, go read the Bible as much as you want. Do whatever you want to do. Teach whatever you want to do. Just get out of our hair. And he went and did that. 
He read the Bible in the original languages. He taught Romans and Galatians and Hebrews and Psalms. And it was through his reading of Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 that it transformed Luther's life. Let's read it together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Not to stop there. The gospel. In Luther's mind, the gospel is not good news. It's a story about how God's mad at me. You see, Luther had not apprehended or comprehended the other half of the gospel. Yes, God has wrath upon you. John 3 is true. We have wrath because of sin. But there is another side of it, which is if you are asked, what is it that makes me eligible to stand in the presence of such a majestic and holy God? The answer cannot be my own merits and my own works. And, and, and Luther knew that. And so instead, to answer the question, how can I get into the presence of God? We need an alien righteousness. We need a righteousness that's not inward, but it's outward. It's somewhere else. And God knew our predicament. And so what God did is he sent his one and only son to come in human flesh, to live the exact perfect obedient life that you and I cannot. And not only that, but Jesus, knowing that we are sinners and deserving of punishment, he took his punishment our punishment upon himself, went to a cross, was crucified, and he bled and died. We know that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so that's why Jesus died. But more than that, we know that he was risen from the dead, that through his resurrection, we know the promises of God are true. We know that death has been defeated, sin has been vanquished, and there's coming a day when Jesus returns where he will make all things new again. And we will be in a place called the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, where righteousness dwells. And we know all of this to be an explanation of the second half of the gospel. Yes, you are sinful. Yes, God's wrath is upon you. But God has provided for you that which you could not provide for yourself, a righteousness which makes you eligible to go into God's presence. And that is the gospel. You're broke and you're dead, but God makes you alive in Jesus Christ. And so if you listen to that story, you trust that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is enough, then his uh, accomplishment is applied to you. It's called the great exchange where Jesus takes upon himself our sin in exchange for his righteousness. So when we go before the presence of God and God says, why should I admit you in here? We plead the blood of Jesus. It's because of Jesus's blood and righteousness that I stand before you, not because of anything I have done. So here's what Luther said about Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's just the gospel. What he said is, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would ever satisfy or soften God's wrath towards me. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God. I rather hated him and murmured against him. And yet I clung to the dear apostle Paul in this text and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And at last, by the mercy of God, meditating on his word day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely... In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which God mercifully justifies us by faith. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. In other words... Once I realized what Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, I stood on my head with joy. God's not mad at me anymore. Not because he doesn't have wrath, but because his wrath has been satisfied by Jesus. 
Not because God is not just, but because God's justice has been satisfied by Jesus. Not because God's love overcomes your sin, but because God's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for you has conquered sin in your behalf and in your place. Condemned, he stood for you. That's why God's not mad at you. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. So, Luther... Luther finally understood what the gospel was. He finally understood that the gospel is the story of good news. Finally, Luther's dark heart became illuminated and was set on fire. Christianity is a message of light and heat. Let's finish this verse and then we'll end. For in it, or excuse me, let's finish. For it is, it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what Luther came to realize is the power of God for salvation comes through the preaching and heralding of God's word in the gospel. Two quick verses, three, three quick verses. Remember how we said the mind and the heart, the, the intellect and the emotions, they have to be cultivated through the spirit. That's our only hope. The question is, how do we get the spirit? And we read in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him, in Jesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's why we have it emblazoned in uh, when you go out in the foyer, turn back around and look up for the praise of his glory. We understand that our salvation is all grace for the praise of his glory. Soli Deo Glorious, glory to him alone. And we know that we receive the Holy Spirit, which enables us to think well and clearly and also to feel what we should feel emotionally when the Holy Spirit comes upon us by us trusting the message of the gospel. And the most beautiful small verse on what the gospel is is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness, so that from here going forth, if you trust Jesus is enough, you recognize your sin and you want to be forgiven, not only that, but you want a clear conscience and you want to be right with God. The only way to do that is to trust that Jesus is enough. He wants to take your sin and wants to give you his righteousness. You know, you heard it said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. I think that's good advice. Galatians 3, 2 through 5. Paul writes, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And according to Ephesians 1, our answer is hearing with faith. That's how you receive the spirit. So are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What Paul's doing is asking these rhetorical questions. If you started to receive the Holy Spirit and begin to feel what you ought to feel and think the way you ought to think, that began by the spirit. How are you going to maintain that clear thinking and right feeling? The answer is through the spirit. And how do you get the spirit? By hearing the gospel and believing it. So every day, wake up, recite the gospel, 
For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. Great exchange. I trust that today. That's what it means, as the choir said, to walk by faith, not by sight. So God, would you help us as a church to be like this? God, would you help us to be a church which is truly filled with the Spirit, overflowing to capacity, evidenced not by us being entertained, but evidenced by the fact that we think deeply and accurately according to your word, and we respond to what we see and hear appropriately with the emotional worship that is rightly yours. So God, would you do that in this church? I pray, I'm begging you, would you do that here? And would you help this campaign this next six weeks to begin to set the tone for our church for this next coming year and beyond that we are a people that are pursuing you. We want to know you, the power of your resurrection. We want to know you, but we also want to worship you appropriately. So grant us the grace and mercy to do so. Kindle our affections, illumine our minds, grant us the heat for your glory and for our joy. Amen.